Inner Voice. A heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, and decrease depression with the Fujian app. Dr. Fujian Zane's awareness integration theory has helped thousands like you get incredible life changing results. Download the Fujian app today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Show.、Um, a heartfelt chat with, with me, Dr. Fujian Zane. I'm a psychotherapist, author, and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory and Fujian app.、Um, it's so great to be with you today. I am excited to share with you all the series of the books about the Awareness Integration Theory. Some of you、um, asked me to share those with you, so here it is、um, Life Reset. Um, is、uh, the book that is for you, for everyone who wants to go through the self help model of the awareness integration, finding the path of the, creating the life you want. And、uh, you can go through journaling, go through the book, and really go through the exercises and the,、um, and the topic and the stories, and maybe you could relate to, and, and then put whatever shows up for you on the journal so that you could have the benefit of going through. Uh, the actual book and the exercises, and really seeing how it can benefit your life. For all of you therapists and coaches who are out there who want to learn the awareness integration model so that you could utilize it with your clients, awareness integration therapy is for you. And、um, in that book, I bring all of the six phases and teach you how to utilize that with your clients. I also have the、uh, certification program for all of you beautiful. Therapists and coaches who want to be certified in this model and、um, also be a part of the Fujian app, supporting people who are working on their own and most, you know, might need more help. And inten intentional parenting, which、uh, I wrote with two of my amazing colleagues,、uh, Dr. Nicole Jafari and、uh, Dr. Eileen Manukian, which for this intentional parenting is for all of you wonderful parents, grandparents, teachers. Um, anyone who's working with、uh, children and raising children in diff different developmental stages. We go through from infancy all the way to、um, your children who are young adult and share with you、uh, exactly what it is that you can do or want to do uh, or, or、um, when you're facing some of the issues that are pretty normal for that age、uh, and how to handle them from the angle of awareness integration theory. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Kathleen Carter Martinez. I've known her for a while, and this was the first time that I actually got to meet her on Zoom and chat with her this way. It was really delightful.、Um, she's an author and a clinical, a licensed clinical psychotherapist at Shea Wind Center for Trauma and Healing. Dr. Kathleen Carter Martinez is a specialist in the crisis of suicide and trauma. And has devoted her professional life to changing the climate and the culture and conversation about the final destination, globally understood suicide. As a compassionate, mindful practitioner, she advocates for a mindful approach to trauma and healing. Through her work, and,、um, she provides hope and comfort for all who live in the aftermath of trauma and those who live with the heartbreaking loss of loved ones. Who lose their、um, the battle with suicide? At the American Academy of Experts in Traumatic Stress, Dr. Carter Martinez holds diplomat status as an expert in traumatic stress and certifications in rape trauma and sexual assault trauma. She is driven by a passion for working with those wounded by personal traumatic events and guides us on a journey from trauma to healing through empathy. And compassionate trauma recovery. She's the author of Permission Granted Journey from Trauma to Healing, which the new excerpts are coming in、um, this year. Where do we come from? Where do we go? That's the name of another wonderful book that she has. And we're all expecting a release date for her third book, Fractured Spirit The Soft Side of Suicide. I hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as I did, looking at suicide from a different angle. Subscribe to this podcast, my YouTube channel, and connect with me. I'd love to hear from you. Connect with me through my website, fujanzane.com, and any of my social media that are through there. 
I love to hear from you. Now, without further ado, here she is, Dr. Kathleen Carter Martins. Well, hello, hello, hello. It is so nice to have you, Dr. Kathleen Carter-Martinez. We have spoken um, kind of uh, through the email and have been a colleague for a long time. And then I get to finally meet you. It is so nice to meet you and for you to be on the show. I'm so excited to be here. I am was so honored when you invited me, but for the reasons you just said, it was just a nice opportunity to actually be face-to-face -face and work together for a little while. Yes, you are um, a suicide crisis trauma specialist. And um, when we talk about the suicide crisis, a lot of times we are talking about um, the crisis that happens in the family, in the community, among friends, among you know everyone. If somebody was at school or if somebody was at work, there's always a community around people. And I think that there's this concept of a suicide and then a pre-suicide and then post-suicide, that it has its own dynamic in a sense. And I know that you have been doing research for so many years on not only the concept of trauma, but also um, specifically in the area of suicide. So first, what got you interested in this element? It's, um, it could be a long story, but I can make it very short. Um, professionally, I define myself as a multidisciplinary ball of wax. And it honestly describes me to the T. When I first started out, like we all do in our career, whatever direction we're going in, um, I was in the field of radiology for 15 years. So I was hospital-based, medical-based um, my entire career. And I went from that when I was working on my, when I was working on my bachelor's degree and then I went into crisis in the emergency room in the same hospital I was in. But back then it was brand new, brand new. And then as I progressed to my next degree, I, I went expanded more into psychiatric emergency. But the interesting thing about that is um, I had the unique opportunity in a sense to see the same patient in a multiple of different medical settings. So you get to see a condition from the perspective of different orientations, so to speak. I saw it very early. I saw it very early and people, you would say, well, if people come in for x-rays and you know radiology, what do you really see of someone who might be struggling with suicide? Unfortunately, uh, you do get to see a lot of people who have done a significant amount of self-harm, but just to that point, you know, and they're still with us. And then I saw them, I saw them in the emergency room in that capacity, and then they would come to me in my department. And then I started to see them in the same emergency room when I was doing my internship in crisis in the same emergency room, and it was brand new at the time within um, the hospital and within the community. Saw the same patient, so I got to see a different, a different perspective, a different aspect of, you know, the question: What is this all about? So, when you're looking at the pre-suicide, as you say, I actually see the signs. What are some of the signs that you see that, even from a medical perspective, it shows up? Is it more like the concept of not taking care of themselves, or is it self-mutilation somehow? Or is it the deep, deep, like hopeless depression? Um, or is it like more like impulsive behavior? What is it that you get to see where as our people are listening or talking to us, they get to um, also be aware of some of these signs? That's a very good question. I'd like to qualify that a little bit because obviously early on in my career, I was learning to know the same signs and symptoms that we all learn early on. 
go down the time span now, as you mentioned before, my research and my work now, and I'm in a very different, very different place and have a very different perspective. And it's that perspective that, in a sense, separates me from the mainstream of suicide work. Like, I don't say that I work in suicide. I, if you know, if, if you had to nail my fingers to the table, I would only tell you that um, I work in the crisis of suicide. And the reason I specify that is because early on, I spent a lot of time learning all the signs and symptoms that we all need to be aware of. To this day, we all need to be aware of them, but they're more um, concrete, they're more tangible, they're more visible, and when you're learning your way, it's you, you can actually see what you're trying to understand. What I also started to sense was what I could not see. And when you are working with a patient physically, there's some sort of harm or something's happened in some definition of a suicide event. Um, you're, you're dealing with people who are very distraught in a different way, not only because of what's driving them for these actions, but now there's physical dis discomfort, some kind of pain. So you learn to be aware of what patients very often cannot tell you. Difficult to verbalize. That has stayed with me all the way to where I am now. Right. So I think people who like people who are listening to us, I think they definitely need to know about all of the the well-known signs and symptoms. And, and what could we say they are? People who feel distraught, act distraught. Some people are depressed. Not all people are depressed. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for people to learn that depression does not equal a suicide gesture or attempt. On the other hand, I think people can learn to know that a suicide attempt is not always about depression. So we have different behaviors and the way people present to us. You know, how many times have you had been in a conversation with someone, um, be it a patient, family member, or a friend, and they're talking about someone and you're saying, well, what's going on? What's wrong? And they go, I don't know. They're just off. What does off mean? There's very few words because people are not accustomed to looking deeper in, into that level of where people are living, basically, when they are feeling like that. And when we're talking about someone is off, is are, are you meaning that they're off in uh, the world that the rest of us have agreed upon and somehow they are... Uh, not finding themselves as a part of or not interested to be as a part of and then that kind of um, experience of kind of isolation that holds for them is that what I'm hearing also as that's very I think that's very similar um, in a sense it's what I might describe as um, the experience of disconnect mm -hmm. In our world where they're they're here with us at the same time, but there's something going on, their sense of disconnect is very different than ours. Their sense of balance and well-being is off balance. They don't feel as connected in our world as we do. And their ability to, in a sense, identify that and verbalize that is extremely difficult because for many people, it's beyond words. It is, however, just as significant as any of the more concrete behaviors we might see in people where we would become alarmed. This type of behavior and this type of disconnect and loss of balance is equally as alarming as the, the more concrete things that are easier to see. I think it's difficult when you know, it depends. Are you working with the person who is struggling or are you living with the person who is struggling? So the way we navigate those two different relationships is very different. Time, obviously, if we're working with someone, is not always on our side. 
But if we're talking about a family member or a friend, we have a little bit more time. And taking the time to be able to just be with, sit with someone who is struggling in some way is quite often what might be needed to help them come to a point where they can engage on some level to give us a sense of what's going on so we can help. And as you experience um, working and being uh, with someone who might be suicidal, do you have the sense that there's a genetic component or is it more trauma-based? Like this happens because they've had trauma um, recently or as they were growing up that creates this kind of disconnect for them? Or could it also be like, you know, genetic and epigenetic that because of the environment that they are, that it might not be a solid, a, a trauma that happens to them as an event, but just being in a traumatic um, existence in a sense with a family dynamic. Um, what is your sense as you work with uh, this group, especially since you've worked so much in the emergency rooms and the crisis, does that, those, the crisis, uh, is it feel like it's a crisis because of a trauma that happened? Or does it feel like it's just sometimes this disconnection has become, has been a way of being and it's just manifesting itself in that form anyway. Well, let me do a quick aside to something you said initially, genetic in the sense of, I've done a lot of work over the years in indigenous Native American communities. So genetic and, uh, and trauma and harm genetically or within the family system over the years is very significant. Um, that's not always something that's understood, but it, it does translate from generation to generation in terms of trying to be helpful and finding remedy, if you will. It's important to know that. If you don't know that, it's very difficult to help. But going to the emergency room, people present in different ways. People definitely present in different ways. And it kind of amazed me over the years as um, I was coming along um, and then had people coming along after me. The limited ability that some people have to recognize trauma. And you say trauma, everyone always thinks it's something like very loud and in your face. You can't miss it. You couldn't hide it if you wanted to. In reality, it's the easiest thing in the world to hide. If you are a person who has been exposed to a personal traumatic event, multiple ones in your in your own existence, and it's missed for that reason, because a lot of people tend to look again for the concrete. If you have the benefit of spending more time with the person who's struggling, you have a better chance of getting to what has happened. Trauma is a big word. It scares people. And a lot of people think if something traumatic happened in my life, it can, it's a terrible thing. It's not as terrible as it feels once you can connect with someone about it and start having some sort of connection and then, then conversation. Sometimes in the ED, frequently, uh, the wrong questions are asked. Questions tend to be concrete in a very ethereal struggle. That's kind of a little strange if you think about it, but it's a it's a it's a way of training. People need to be trained. They need to be trained in order to connect to communicate with people who are struggling. But when it comes to the dynamic of suicide, direct questions are not always the best way. It's very easy. It's like it's the easiest thing in the world for someone who's strugg actively struggling in a suicide episode to be evasive. They know how to do it. So instead of saying to someone like, if you're with someone and you know there's some sort of trauma here, instead of saying to someone, have you had some sort of trauma in your life? One of the things you can do trying to get people to let you in is to say, is there anything you'd like me to know about? 
Is there anything that you'd like to share with me? Is there something that you've never been able to share with someone? Would you like to now? We, we take a softer approach and in a sense come in the back door to create a sense of safety for people because to talk about trauma is, is very frightening, initially anyway. I remember working with um, um, people who were seriously um, engaging in, in the conversation of and the action of suicide. And um, I was working in inpatient hospitals, the head of two outpatient hospitals. And for almost three years, Kathleen, I every night I was on the phone with people working to get them into the hospital, talking to, you know, mm -hmm. physicians and psychiatrists in the hospital. And it was interesting at one point. I mean, I think for us all as clinicians, um, we hope and we'll do anything to hold the person into a space of at least giving time to themselves until maybe something changes. And I remember I was in Northern California working at a hospital and all of us, all the psychiatrists, psychotherapists and nurses, we had one um, one woman who was around 50 some years old and um, she was almost there for um, for one month. And many times as you know, we wanted to discharge her. We still did the assessment and it was a lot of, you know, thinking about, no, this is might still happen. So uh, they kept her under 5150 for almost 30 days and was getting close to 40. So this time we had everything ready. We had, you know, her cat, her sister, her apartment, we got everything ready. Every single word was in a way of, you know, she's going to go from there and go to an outpatient and do it, everything. Well, she got discharged, she went on to, to the bridge and um, jumped. And I think it was one of the biggest shock for all of us. And that really taught me a huge, huge lesson of, it's it's what I saw also, the, you know, the, your book, um, your book, Permission Granted, it was, it's like, it got me suddenly and it's like, that's exactly what it was. It was like, I had to get to see that permission is granted. And no matter what, I'm not shaming you for what you want. And from there on, it changed my perspective about how to work with people who were in that space. Because a lot of times people will sh won't share because they think you're going to tell them, don't do it, you can't. And you're going to shame them and guilt them. And then, you know, and it was a lot of things like when I hear it, it's like, well, you have every right to do whatever you like with your body with your psyche, with your life. And it was more this, this kind of permission that it's like, even if you choose to go, I will honor you. But before you go, can we connect and just share with me? And that has really helped with people to come into this ease of what you just said, like anything you want me to know. And then it's almost like allowing just to just to share without thinking that the minute I'm going to share, it's almost like I made my decision. So, and I might, I might give you a little bit to see what you, what you could offer me. But if you're going to shame me, if you're going to not understand me, if you're going to push me to another side, if you're all of those, then I just go back into a space of, see, mm -hmm. we just don't connect. And that really, really taught me a lot about suicide and this concept. Um, I mean, your book, Permission Granted, is, is the journey from trauma to healing. And can you share a little bit about um, permission, for gra permission Granted book? Well, that was in the works for such a long time. Um, in, in my work, Whatever I do, I always end up using the word. It's something I'm very passionate about. So technically, in the line of passion, this came before the suicide component. This was definitely before. Um, you remember years ago, there was a book called Men, Women, and Rape. Did you ever read that book? Mm -hmm. It's the thickest book you can imagine. And I thought, oh, I, you know, I, I was very young then. I mean, how, how could I have the time to read it? But I did. It was an amazing, amazing book 
which I think anyone who works in the field should just do it. You know, when keep it next to your bed, if it takes you a year to do it, do it. You won't forget it. But it was so inspiring to me. And the, this has seemed like the silliest thought, but I thought, how can anybody write a book that big about something that happened to a woman? This was a long time ago. And that's what compelled me to really want to understand what, what more is there that we need to know about. I tried, um, I had a passion at a very young age to work in rape crisis. And when I was still working in radiology, you know, I was one of these folks that's working and going to school, working and going to school. So things changed as I went along. And I applied for this position as a um, rape crisis advocate for a county prosecutor's office. At that point, I already had like a good foundation to get started. I was very informed, adequately educated at the time. And they called me for the interview, so excited. And I went, and who do you think interviewed me? This blew my mind, blew my mind. I went into this room, this office, five male investigators in me. I was starting to understand how you write a book that big. But I, I still, you know, um, I held my own. I was able to navigate through that um, interview. It was very insightful. They were great, honestly. But what a daunting experience. I got a letter and a phone call saying, thank you very much. Such a wonderful interview. We all love meeting you. But they basically told me I was too young and didn't know enough. Come back later. So I said, okay. I kept going. A couple years later, similar position comes up. I interview for it. I go put in for it and I interview. They call me back. I have a degree in forensic psychology. I have healthcare behind me, underneath me already. Same dynamic, four or five men, same conversation. Again, I, I, I got a letter and a phone call. Thank you so much. It was so good to see you again. But we just feel like this might be a little, this work is too hard for a woman. For a woman. So I said, fine. <laughs> fine. I just decided to go forward, which is what I did. And in my own way, I was focusing. Everything I was doing was connected. It made sense to me. I knew where I was going. Ultimately, to write permission granted was my goal. And I'll be honest with you and tell you, it took a long time because there is a lot in there that is very, um, my book is not as big as Men, Women, and Rape, but I think the content in there and the information and, and insights for people who are struggling and people who are working with people who are struggling is helpful. And I just decided I was not going to go backwards to have a man or multiple men tell me that I was either too young or too much of a female to be effective, I decided I will be effective in my own way. You also have a concept, uh, which is four corners of trauma. Trauma, lifetime, it's a lifelong, um, when trauma comes, it comes to stay, as you say, living in the aftermath of it. Um, now you have the four corners. Can you share with us what the four corners of trauma are? I don't have it in front of me. You have to remind me of each corner. Give me a corner and I can tell you. Uh, sure. Um, you talk about um, living in the aftermath in the, uh, the pretender. So one is the pretender. How do we live um, and what kind of choices we create? So that's what I had understood. <laughs> Um, and that's uh, basically, that is uh, like the format or foundation within Permission Granite. Um, that's where it came from. And the interesting thing about the four corners, and, and when I have used this in my work with other people, um, many people struggle with this concept that if you have had the experience of a personal traumatic event in your life, um, you do have choices. Yes. You do have choices. And 
for those who struggle in the aftermath, that is a unique concept because obviously trauma creates this sense that, you, you know, something happened that was not my choice against me. So why would I think that I have any more choices going forward? Why would I think that I don't have to feel like this forever? Why would I think that it's possible to change? It's very important in terms of deciding part of the four corners is how do you want to live with this personal traumatic event in your life? That's a that's a very significant question or statement to say to someone, how do you want to live with this personal traumatic event in your life? It is a very clear acknowledgement of a very difficult event that has happened in someone's life. But instead of saying, okay, in time you'll get over it, you'll be better, let's forget about it, let's move forward. We're saying, we understand this is a significant permanent part of your life. Now the question is, how do you want to live with it? Because you have the choice to decide. And we have different choices in terms of comfort levels. And there's so many different personal elements in any person's life as to when and how you would make a choice. How do you want to live? Do you want to live with this traumatic event? Or do you want to live through this traumatic event? Either way, it's part of you. It stays with you. But it's how you work with it in your life to come to a place where it's here but it's not dominating all other parts of your life. But I think the question itself is a powerful question. How do you want to live with this personal traumatic event in your life? Very powerful question. Um, part of what I also understood from you is like they, one aspect of it is living with it now then you have all this con the concept of entering the great pretender as if I'm pretending nothing has happened, although it's there. And then learning how to live with it and then moving as, how do I, what kind of choices do I have in in moving along and through it, with it. And um, and I think another uh, angle that I've also seen in, in my work um, in, through the awareness integration is a lot of times when we are traumatized and been a victim, we could choose to stay a victim or we could, you know, from a, and stand, take a stand of, as a victim stand, stands. Mm -hmm. Or I can learn from it and, and, and really tap into the strength and resiliency that I've had so that I can work through it and, and learn from it and, and move on with it so that I can experience my empowerment versus the victimization of that and i also see a lot of times um you know you get to both sides of the two two sides of the spectrum where one is don't worry about it you're strong enough you know kind of shake it off and move on or you get the uh, opposite side of oh poor you this mm -hmm. is going to be ending you're always going to have that you know so you get these two um opposite polar concept and that if somebody holds to their identity or they can uh, heal from it and part of what your book says is healing from trauma and then seeing what it is that you could move on with the part you mentioned about um and in your own work too about you can be a victim or not a victim one of the things and it's integrated into the four corners is again making the choice now you can say you are, you can say, I am a rape victim. If that is your mantra and that is what resonates with you, that's fine. But what I say is that if, if that is where you are and you say, I am a rape victim, then that is what you will always be because we are what we tell ourselves we are. Or you can turn it around and you can say, I am a victim of rape or domestic violence or sexual assault. That's meant to imply that a personal traumatic event has absolutely happened, but you are on a journey, you are moving past that. It's not dominating your life. But I also think it's important to say that there is no right or wrong there, or good or bad, because people must make their own personal choices 
dependent on what they're comfortable with. And as you know, as well as I do, there's so many factors like family, cultural, that influence the comfort level of someone. In in this book, in Permission Granted, one of, um, at the end, I forget which chapter it is, it has four stories, I think. They're actual events that happened to a person. One was, um, they were all relatively young, but one of them um, came from a culture where even if this happened to you, you were not allowed to talk about it. You could not ever talk about it. And she did not. For her, choosing to share her story in the book was, you know, cathartic for her as opposed to walking into the kitchen and telling her mother, which to that day was just not an option for her. But this was, and in conversation after, she felt that that allowed her to make the second choice, to say, I was a victim of sexual assault. You know, now I'm moving through. But by her own definition and explanation, there wasn't anything in her family or cultural background that gave her permission to do that. So she chose that option as an alternative. I'm just happy to say that it, it helped her. It helped her move to a different space. Now, you have a book coming, Fractured mm -hmm. Spirit, The Soft Side of Suicide. Yes. And, um, you share um, with the, the readers about um, some of the conversations that you, you had um, at the beginning, which is really looking at what we cannot see and um, kind of like the um, philocentric type of thinking that a person might have. And then what is it, you know, and I love the, the name fractured spirit. So can you share um, with us what the readers could expect and what would they be looking forward to when the book is uh, published? I hope they expect, I hope they're surprised to find a voice that they have not heard before. Mm -hmm. Where where we're going in here and exactly where I want to go are in the, all the soft spots, all the soft spaces, fractured spirit, the soft side of suicide, the, the things that we can't see, but I think they're so obvious. I think they're so obvious. It's just that we've been wired in the opposite. And my goal is to change the conversation in the community. Early on in the beginning, you mentioned the community and you were mentioning different people and their roles with respect to a suicide community. And in in many ways, that that just makes me feel so much better to hear that because um, the, the social concepts taken together with some of the clinical ones kind of limit that and focus more on the person who was either made an attempt or made a successful attempt. And at that point, we forget about everybody else. We forget about what's happening now that perhaps we have lost someone. There's a whole community of people in fractured spirit we will find those people who live in those communities. They are in our community. In the work on um, prevention, which you and I have been very involved in, unless we recognize who actually make up our community, any prevention efforts we make won't work because we have to understand who all the people are and why they are important. I talk about um, the forgotten collaborator. The forgotten collaborator is a family member or a friend. Whenever um, a call comes in, there's a suicide, it, it comes from somebody. And that call more than likely comes from a family member or a friend. And then our first responders, EMTs, ambulance come, take the person to the hospital. The first, the forgotten collaborator is actually the first person that anyone in the ER should be talking to. They have more information than any of us. They understand this person better than we do. 
because they actually see things that we don't see and they understand i had a i had a client at one point the people she worked with used to tell me uh, she was what other people would decide describe as chronic suicide I, i'm not comfortable with this type of terminology it's just that it's out there and people understand it so i use it uh chronic suicide that's what they called her she had her ears pierced from the top all the way down to the bottom both sides her family struggled tremendously with her repeated repeated gestures and attempts ultimately successful what her colleagues who worked in the medical center with her told me later was that they always knew when she was slipping away, and that was her word, her words. How did they know that? She would come to work and one day one earring would be out, the next day another earring would be out. And by the time she got down to no earrings, she made an attempt. Every single time, it's not in a textbook. It's from people around you who are connected to you, who know what it's like to be with you and have a sense of what it's like when you're not okay, but you can't say it. But she did. She did say it. She said, something's happening again. We talk about the forgotten collaborator. We talk about Mother Nature's first responder who is on par with our first responders, EMT, emergency people, the people who actually respond to the call. They are the ones who have to act. They are the ones who have to take action, decide what to do, how to protect this person until, and, you know, and the thinking is the other people get here. That brings us to also the other community of first responders, our professionals who respond. And in many ways, we, until we fully acknowledge what they do, we abandon them for the struggles that they live with for all of the calls they respond to to help people, for all of the calls they respond to and they're unable to help people. They're in, they are as much a part of the community, of the suicide community as anyone else, as the patient or as the family member. A lot of what people will find in an effort to help them understand what why there are things we can't see is a lot of focus on psychic. I love that word, psychic. I mean, it hurts to say it, but it, it is a fundamental, a fundamental component of the struggle within suicide. It has more to do with the deep wounded feeling, creating a sense of disconnect, a sense of loss, a sense of sorrow, and probably not for any concrete reason. It's something happening like the intraconnectedness within. We all have, we're all wired together, but something happens with the intraconnectedness. And when that starts to separate and we're not as enmeshed as we usually are, things shift. Psychic contributes, grows stronger, is profound. Psychic is also important because it helps us understand that that's not necessarily about depression. It's more fundamental than that. Psychic says there is a different, a, a different understanding, if you will, of what happens when um, someone is trapped in this repeated journey and the crisis of suicide. And that's why I just, crisis of suicide, I say it every time because there's more than one element to it. There's more than one layer to it. There's more than one understanding. And any one person could be understood better in a multiple of different perspectives, which is in stark contrast, as you said, to the silo-centric thinking that socially and clinically we have been trapped in. And the World Health Organization brought that to late 2008 when they did the study on interprofessional education and training, when they recognized, especially in this country, but other countries too, that our medical training for decades has been silo-centric. We only see the silo that we're trained in. 
And that is where suicide lives. So that's why we don't see so many other elements and aspects of it. I hope when it's done and people pick it up and it's in their hand, they're going to feel someone sees me. Someone understands. Someone knows that I'm out here. And if I can say that, then maybe someone else who's trying to live with someone or trying to find a way to help someone is also going to feel that way too. We have a different way. Maybe we have, I got a call when I was uh, covering psych emergency one day and a PA called me and said, I need you to come in, you know, and they call rapid speech, you know, female patient, blah, blah, blah. But the description of the patient, like I was on the phone, I was just getting ready to say I'm on my way. And I stopped because they described this female patient to me, which they called older and just the terminology was not nice. The person was a wreck, a mess, drunk, you know, suicidal. I don't know what we're going to do with them. You know, you could, like he said, you couldn't imagine a worse patient. So I'm like, okay, I'm coming, you know. So I get there and I check in with him first. Any changes, anything else you'd like me to know? And just so, oh, Dr. Casey, no, just go do your thing, but you're not going to be able to do anything here. So I said, okay. So I walk in with my clipboard and everything, and I was looking down and I looked up at the woman on the stretcher and I looked at her and I just turned my head. The look of horror on her face broke my heart. And I just closed my eyes and I just said, what are you doing here? It was a woman I had been very good friends with uh, when our children were younger, during the time when we were together all the time. When I, at that time when I knew her, this woman went to work every day, every hair, much better than me, every hair in place, you know, all her clothes in place. Her house was immaculate. Her kids were fantastic. She was a single parent. She did it all. When we think of life events, especially at certain ages, everything that could happen when your kids are older and they're out of the house that could feel devastating happened to her one, two, three, four, four different things. So, yep, she she had been in recovery for years. She went on a bender. She making suicide attempts. But that's all that the provider saw. I took all of my stuff and I just put it down and I just looked at her and I said, I said, do you have a hug for an old friend? So I just went over and literally I just scooped her up, you know, and well, what did I say to her? You know, I'm not going to tell her everything's going to be perfect. I just said to her, it's going to be okay. We're going to figure it out. We're going to figure it out and it's going to be okay. And she did go inpatient, which I would have told you at any other time in her life, she would have fought tremendously. But the fact that her presentation was such that it pigeonholed her to be viewed only in a certain way, which prevented her from being seen for the fractured person that she was at that moment in time. And when I came across her quite a bit after that later on, I never said a word, never acted like when I saw her again, like she was okay had come back, did some good work, was doing better. But that that blew my mind because I had an image of this person that I was going to see. So afterwards, I did what I did and she was going to be admitted. I went over to the, the PA and I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, you have a minute? And he goes, well, I'm really busy and everything. I said, well, keep doing what you're doing. I'm just going to talk to you. I'm going to talk in your ear. And I basically told them, I just want you to know who this person is. I said, this is not the, the woman you're looking at. I said, but this is who this person is. And right now, I said, she is very fractured and needs a lot of compassion. That's what she needs. And I said, the next time someone comes, think of that. Yes. 
And thank you for sharing. Um, thank you for sharing what difference the com compassion is versus pity or, um, you know, looking at someone from uh, like a weak, it's, it's just fractured spirit. Um, Dr. Kathleen Carter-Martinez, thank you so much for the time that you allowed for us. Um, is there anything we haven't said that you really want people to know? I think um, there is a common thread in all of my work. And it's coming, it is, it's coming through now into fractured spirit. And I believe it gives us a renewed understanding and perspective on trauma, how it impacts our life and how we continue, we can continue to live and we can go forward. With respect to the work in, in suicide, I just want people to know a different conversation's coming. We all have to choose the ones that resonate with us the ones that make sense with us. And I'm hoping the conversation that Fractured Spirit brings, the, the conversation is reflected in the cover. If you take a close look at it, there's two sides to it. One is the symbol of the dragonfly who is flourishing, is doing fine. I mean, everything is okay in that part of life. And then if you look at the other side, it, like it's the the wings look like they're faded away, worn away, and there's pieces missing. And all of the, the terms and the words there are about difficulties and struggles and sadness in one's life. But this is all of us. This is all of us. We, we will not always all look healthy and rounded consistently. We will all struggle. And in here, what we're trying to do in Fractured Spirit, the soft side of suicide, and say, we understand that. We know. And we're hoping to bring that story and understanding to other people to help themselves and, if possible, then to help other people. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being with Thank us. Thank you. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye. Eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, and decrease depression. Dr. Fujian Zane's awareness integration theory has helped thousands like you get incredible life-changing results. The Fujian app gives you her evidence-based treatment in the palm of your hand. Download today.